Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Three Deeper Cuts podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist. Every week we bring you something to think about, something to read, or something to listen to. Three Deeper Cuts is brought to you by Formalin Fixed Paraffin Embedded Tissue. Emphasis on the formalin, because without the high levels of exposure to 10% buffered neutral formalin that I experienced during my four years of residency in St. Louis, I wouldn't be able to think about all of the interesting things that we write about here at 3 Deeper Cuts Publishing. All right, fellas and ladies, I'm excited to be here. It's a beautiful Saturday morning in the D. Got in a little run, had a little coffee. Sun is shining and it's all good. What are we can talk about today? Uh, we're going to talk about necrotic sequestrum. And we're going to get into some osteomyelitis content. Uh, and if there's time, uh, we're going to go through some, uh, some more captain's logs from earlier this year. All right, let's get into it. Necrotic sequestrum. What are we talking about here? That's a dead sequestrum or compartment of bone it could be any bone but particularly long bones and it is the consequence of chronic well first acute and then chronic osteomyelitis and that may be the only thing that you see on a bone biopsy in routine clinical practice um not a big deal not confusing but sometimes you don't know if it's related to infarct type necrosis or whether it's just sampling of a cavity of acute osteomyelitis. But since it's something that's so common in routine practice and we're getting all kinds of toes and metatarsals from podiatry, I just thought we'd take a minute and go through a nice review by Dr. Andrew Rosenberg and Dr. Jasveer Kurana. Uh, this is an article that came out in Diagnostic Histopathology in 2016, and it's just a really nice, it, it's, it flows very well, and it's a good overview of osteomyelitis. Okay, let's get into it. So osteomyelitis, what are we talking about? It is inflammation of the bone and the medullary contents, infection of the skeleton. This can be caused by bacteria fungus, mycobacteria, parasites even, but most commonly what we are seeing in routine practice in the West is diabetic ulcers that burn into the bone, chewing away at the periosteum and forming neutrophilic microabscesses within the marrow cavity. This later becomes chronic, forming marrow fibrosis with small lymphocytes, and plasma cell aggregates, um, and ultimately leading to a necrotic sequestrum. So how common is this? Uh, unfortunately, there's no good data as to the incidence of acute osteomyelitis. There was a French pediatric study that found um, the incidence to be 7.1 out of 100,000 patients, so about 7%. This included uh, 
this was just pediatric patients. Uh, as far as adult patients, uh, there's actually nothing good cited here. Uh, they talk about a Uganda study. Uh, they, they looked at five different hospitals. They found 10% of outpatient visits and 3.5% of all surgeries uh, were related to osteomyelitis. Uh, I guess that sounds about right um, in my routine practice at an 800-bed community hospital built on an ancient Indian burial ground. More on that later. Pathophysiology. Okay. There's three types of osteomyelitis. You got hematogenous seeding. You got ulcer seeding, so that would be direct extension uh, from a contiguous site, so like the skin of your great toe and the ulcer and inflammation and bacteria are seeded into the bone. Uh, and thirdly, direct inoculation from penetrating injuries, uh, so car accidents, sports-related accidents, uh, combat-related accidents. Uh, so hematogenous spreading, uh, so it's this helps to kind of visualize a long bone, and there's a there's a little cartoon I drew uh, that's adapted from this paper. Uh, you'll find that in the text below on Substack. So if you just picture a bone, and there's an artery and a vein that feeds through um, this little entry point that burrows through the periosteum and into the medullary cavity. cavity then by the time it gets past the the epiphyseal plate, the velocity of the blood flow is sluggish, uh, and it, it kind of just hangs out there, um, and that can become a source of infection because it's stagnant. It's a potential source for bacterial infection, and that is a more common pathophysiologic mechanism in the pediatric population. It's nice to review because I generally don't see a lot of pediatric specimens. Um, but a good friend of mine, uh, Gonzo, is an expert in pediatric pathology. Uh, okay, so the blood flow in the capillary sinusoid loop region is sluggish and turbulent, and phagocyte function is suboptimal. And together... These features facilitate deposition of the organism into the metaphyseal tissue and likely creates local hypoxia, an environment that is conducive to infection. All right, so now the kid grows up and you have adult bone. In adults, after closure of the growth plate, the metaphyseal and epiphyseal vessels establish reconnections so bacteria entering the nutrient artery are directed to the vascular loops beneath the articular cartilage. Okay. Uh, so we got that down, hematogenous spread. Now, osteomyelitis resulted from contiguous spread. So again, classic would be um, cellulitis and diabetic feet. But another clinical scenario that uh, I hadn't thought of in a, in a while, I haven't thought of this since since residency actually it would be periodontal disease and sinus disease where it invades uh in into the bone from yeah from the gums and sinuses uh and other uh, 
So other scenarios could be epidural abscess or a decubitus ulcer. I see plenty of those. Uh, and septic arthritis. Just had one of those yesterday. In these situations, the inflammatory process must first destroy the periosteum or the articular surface. Okay, so we got that. Then it gets into the medullary cavity. Um, okay, so let's get into the microbiology of this. I think we've talked about mechanisms enough. So bacterial infection. Um, hematogenous osteomyelitis is like 80 to 90% staph aureus bacteria. Um, and uh, you can also have group A, group B, streptococcal uh, organisms, um, gram-negative organisms in neonates. Uh, uh, so that's that's for your hematogenous osteomyelitis. Now for contiguous spread osteomyelitis, uh, this is an interesting fact. Uh, so for the periodontal, uh, actinomyces is a pathogen uh, usually seen in jaw infections, and those occur in patients that are on bisphosphonates. So that's your osteoporosis population. Um, and then also like in head and neck cancer patients where you get uh, patients that have had radiation, this induces necrosis, uh, of the other uh, of the underlying bone, and then that is a good medium for bacteria to enter. And those those could be anything: Staph aureus, Strep, Actinomyces. Um, and then moving on to the diabetic population, ulcers of the feet. Um, so Staph aureus it could be methicillin resistant Staph aureus. The next most common bugs would be Staph epidermidis, E. coli, Klebsiella, Proteus. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, but yeah, think. Uh, think skin stuff that lives on the skin. So pro tip, don't be a diabetic because I'll tell you right now, it ain't pretty. All right, moving on. Direct implantation osteomyelitis. Uh, okay, he says a host of different bacteria can behave as pathogens, including those that normally uh, colonize the skin. Okay, most are free with staph. Okay, yeah, so we know that staphylococci. Uh, but this is more interesting, moving on to mycobacterial infection. So I don't see this a lot, but I imagine this will become more uh, more common uh, given that, I mean, I practice in the south, uh, closer to the border. Um, uh, so there are greater than 150 different species of mycobacterium worldwide. Uh, majority of them are not pathogenic, but they are ubiquitous. So water, soil, uh, basically everywhere in the world, uh, animals, foods. Uh, but for humans, the major pathogenic uh, strains are M. tuberculosis. So we've all heard of that one. M. leprae M, and M. ulcerans. Those three are responsible for the significant human disease. Major differences between M. tuberculosis and non-tuberculosis mycobacterium are the virulence of the organisms and the potential for human-to-human transmission. Uh, so the so the leprae and ulcerans are just generally less virulent, uh, and it's like a lesser likelihood of human-to-human spread. Uh, good to know. And... Um, Okay, at least 60 species of non-tuberculous mycobacteria have been documented to, to cause human illness. And new species are being reported on a continual basis. Um, so these are your mycobacterium avium intracellular, um, mycobacterium fortuitum, and Kansasii 
in decreasing order of frequency. Okay, so that's your mycobacteria. The next type of organism is your. Uh, so I've, I haven't seen I haven't seen this uh, trypanemal infection. So this is your syphilis categories, uh, your spirochetes, long, thin, gram-negative bacteria that are helical or spiral-shaped. Um, these organisms can be visualized with silver stains such as the warthin starry, and then there's some other techniques to see it. And uh, tryponemes produce venereal and endemic or non-venereal disease, and those that most commonly cause bone infection are venereal syphilis. So those are your sexually transmitted ones. Uh, so I don't know, maybe I'll see that. Um, there's all kinds of uh, demographics that present at the place where I work. Uh, so you always got to be ready. Seen it in the GI tract, but, uh, but not in the bone. Next, fungal infections. Fungal osteomyelitis. So you can have so this would be more common in your immunocompromised population. Candida, blastomyces, coccidioides in the southwest. Histoplasma, cryptococcus. So those get into the bone via the vascular system. And it can be a complication of pulmonary infection or some other type of systemic deep internal infection. Um, so as we know from our microbiology training, histoplasma, blasto, and coccidioides are your endemic fungi uh, and, uh, and are generally uh, hematogenously spread. And let's see, what else do we have? Aspergillus, sporothrix, shankii, those cause mycetomas uh, and usually access bone first by forming a soft tissue infection and then spread via direct extension into the adjacent bone. Next on the list is your parasites. So I have never seen this, but helminthic infection. So helminth is like your worms. And the worm that has the greatest propensity to infect bone is Echinococcus. Echinococcus is a tapeworm. There's 12 different species. And the common, the more common one is Echinococcus granulosa, and that is the one that can cause uh, more significant bone disease. I probably won't ever see that uh, unless I maybe uh, go to a developing nation or something. Uh, so next, viral infection. So viral osteomyelitis is pretty uncommon. Uh, most commonly caused bone changes. So smallpox. Vaccinia and intrauterine rubella and cytomegalic inclusion. So I, I don't know if I'll ever see that, but uh, I wonder if there's any smallpox still going around. That's kind of scary. I, you never know. Okay, so now they get into clinical presentation. Uh, we can kind of skip over a lot of this because we're not clinicians. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the clinical is important. Um, so... Fever, chills, malaise, leukocytosis, sed rate, elevation, C-protein elevation, uh, edema, swelling, warmth. This, this is actually really important, man. Everything in medicine comes down to the history and physical examination. And you can tell the clinicians who care have a very well-documented uh, physical exam, and they comment on it in their assessment and plan. And we, behind the scenes 
pathologist uh, read those very carefully and we respect it and we appreciate it. So good on you for doing your history and physical uh, in a detailed and caring manner. Uh, so, okay, acute osteomyelitis, it, it can just resolve on its own or progress to chronic disease. Uh, patients with chronic osteomyelitis usually have protracted course that may be interspersed with acute episodes. The organisms are usually present at low level and resistant to drug therapy. Uh, okay, we'll skip down a little bit here. Uh, down into the pathology section. I'm just going through these highlights. I'm not going to paste these pictures from the article into the substack because, I mean, you need... Uh, that's unethical. I mean, you can give the authors credit and, you know, pay for their subscription and uh, that sort of thing. Okay, the phleg... Okay, so so the bacteria gets in. You have phlegmon and developing ad, abscess that increases the intraosseous pressure, which forces inflammatory reaction through the medullary cavity into the haversian systems and, and Volkmann's canals, causing necrosis, sometimes a sizable segment of bone... The devitalized bone is known as a sequestrum. I like that word. Um, so you can just go back to the little cartoon that I drew. And that's, that's sometimes, again, sometimes you'll just get a biopsy of just dead bone. And, um, and that's it. That's all you're going to have, nonspecific. Okay, uh, so sequestrum, moving on. Uh, and then he goes in to talk about uh, purulent drainage extending to the epiphysis, and then it can get into the articular surface. Then you get septic arthritis. This complication most frequently affects articulations whose joint capsules insert into cortices beyond the confines of the epiphysis. Um, so, yeah, the spine uh, spread to adjacent vertebral bodies. Um, and then you've got your spread along the iliopsoas muscle into the paravertebral muscles. Okay, and then... Uh, so the, you know, this is more pathology, physiology that is interesting. Uh, accordingly, so, so now you have this roaring infection. Um, osteoclasts are generated. So osteoclasts, again, are the ones uh, that break down the bone. So in this inflammatory milieu, you have cytokines, you have uh, enzymes released and it forms a biological broth that has powerful effects on the resident cells and biomaterials that compose bone tissue. Osteoclasts are generated, and in this setting, their numbers and activity are more extreme than any other disease process. The osteoclasts target and resorb necrotic bone, thereby creating space for the expanding inflamed granulation tissue. The evolving response leads to the arrival of lymphocytes, plasma cells, and macrophages and collagen-producing fibroblasts and newly formed blood vessels, which heralds the so-called chronic phase of osteomyelitis. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. I, I, hadn't, I had forgotten about that physiologic aspect, the, the osteoclastic portion, breaking down the bones um, and, uh, and then resorbing that dead bone and then, I mean, you see this in, on histology. It's kind of like a cleared out marrow space, especially in these metatarsals or even in like a tibia where it's been going on for a really long time. And there's not much bony. It's like a spaced out, loose bony trabeculae 
and uh, and there's it's like this wide open spaces with some fibroblasts, fibrosis, and plasma cells. Okay, let's skip down a little bit. So you get bone remodeling, um, involucrum, sclerosis, uh, and okay, some infections get a sclerosing osteo- osteomyelitis of Garay. Uh, Garay, I, I haven't heard about uh, about that person. I'll have to read about that. Um, histologic diagnosis of oste- acute osteomyelitis is usually not problematic. So disease manifests as sheets of neutrophils filling the marrow spaces. Depending on the age of the duration of the disease, bone may be viable or necrotic. And then, okay, so now we're kind of going over the chronic phase again. There's some more really nice pictures, so I encourage you to d- to uh, download this article uh, legally through your institution. Okay, now he goes into special types of infection, mycobacterial osteomyelitis. Um, so mycobacteria... This is usually from direct extension from a pulmonary focus into a rib. Um, yeah, you, you can get it anywhere. I mean, uh, I've heard about it happening in the in the spine and in the long bones as well. Uh, two to ten spinal infection occurs two to ten times more frequently in HIV infected patients. Uh, in the spine, ninety eight percent of infections are centered in the anterior column and in the involved level. And the involved level is usually located in the region T6 to L3, uh, leading to the formation of a gibbous or kyphosis. Uh, all right, another word I need to read about, gibbous. I've, I've never heard of the word gibbous. But kyphosis I have heard of, so that's the hunching over of the spine. And then histologically, the sine qua non of the tuberculous osteomyelitis is necrotizing granulomatous inf- inflammation. Uh, and so we all know what that looks like. A typical mycobacterial osteomyelitis uh, pathology. So he's got some nice pictures here of uh, beaded mycobacteria on the AFB stain. Uh, and for you pathologists in community practice, be careful because it can be focused. You need to look on high power and you need to slow down. Just get comfy. Uh, put on some podcasts. Put on your favorite jazz. But you really got to get in there and look for those mycobacteria. All right. Uh, and then treatment of non tuberculous uh, mycobacteria um, is a combination of surgery and multi drug anti mycobacterial chemotherapy. Chemotherapy? I think he means drug therapy. Uh, whatever, same thing. Um, Syphilitic osteomyelitis, uh, now he's talking about pathology of that, so the spirochetes localized to the area of great, greatest growth, namely regions of active endochondral ossification, uh, so in parentheses osteochondritis, and in the cellular layer of the periosteum, uh, periosteitis. Sites commonly involved are the metaphyseal region of long tubular bones and costochondral junctions. Uh, bone involvement may begin early in the tertiary stage, which is two to five years after the initial infections. Uh, so that's interesting. So they say that syphilis being the great mimicker, uh, you know, the other, you know, akin to lupus, uh, it can just hang out. And then it shows up as a lesion uh, several years later. Uh, so and he talks about gummas uh, after its resemblance to Arabic gum. Histologically, it consists of eosinophilic necrotic inflammatory debris and connective tissue surrounded by granulation tissue and containing Lymphocytes, numerous plasma cells, macrophages, epithelioid, uh, Langerhans cells. All right. 
keep this going. Um, fungal osteomyelitis. He's got some beautiful pictures here of both the syphilis, spirochete within bone, and uh, fungal organisms highlighted on a musicarmine stain. Uh, we'll just skip through that. You'll probably see some fungal. Uh, I mean, gosh, I've seen, I've seen some really deep fungal infections. And uh, let's see, parasitic osteomyelitis. Human echinococcal infection occurs across the globe. Results from ingestion of contaminated water or food. Handling live animals, which act as a definitive host. Uh, so echinococcus. So you can see, if you remember from your boards, the hydatid cyst of the liver. I've actually seen two of those between fellowship and... An, I th- yeah, one's in fellowship, one is in residency. An actual echinococcal cyst. I think it was an uh, immigrant or something um, from the, either Latin America or somewhere. I can't remember, but uh, it's really interesting. Uh, so unilocular cyst filled with fluid lined with an inner germinal membrane that produces brood capsules. And then you get the inner wall of the brood capsules facilitates an asexual budding process that generates thousands of new larval tapeworms or protoscolices in daughter cysts. The hydatid cysts can achieve large size, 2 to 30, two to 30 centimeters, have a thick wall, and contain a pale, a cl- uh, and contain clear, uh, pale, clear or pale yellow fluid. Uh, the sites of bone disease commonly include the spine, pelvis, and log bones. Uh, so that's very interesting. I, uh, I haven't seen that before. So that's, that's why this is such a good article. Differential diagnosis of osteomyelitis. Uh, so features that support the possibility of infection include the density of inflammation and its distribution. Situations prone to potential misinterpretation include subchondral acute inflammation and severe arthritis, acute inflammation associated with acute fracture, and autoimmune-related inflammatory diseases Uh, So you've got your chronic recurrent multifocal osteomyelitis, sarcoidosis, uh, hematopoietic malignancies, and histiocytic uh, proliferations like Langerhansel, Erdheim-Chester disease, and Rosai-Dorfman disease. So I actually haven't seen, so I think I saw Erdheim-Chester a long time ago. Rosai-Dorfman had definitely seen, sarcoid definitely seen. Not sure if I've seen it in bone, though. Um, So then he goes into talking about this sub- chondral acute inflammation and severe arthritis. So this is your rheumatologic disease uh, patients. So patients frequently have a history of rheumatoid arthritis, osteonecrosis, or osteoarthritis. And because trabecular bone is necrotic, the histologic resemblance to acute bacterial osteomyelitis can be striking. So this is where the clinical scenario is important. Um, So cysts, uh, suppurative exudate, uh, fibrous lining of a cyst. Uh, yeah, so bottom line, it's, it's basically like acute osteomyelitis in in the setting of it. So what he's saying is it doesn't have to be bacterial. Sometimes you get the same histologic pattern of disease in a patient with autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, uh, and then this is important. The acute stages of fracture can contain abundant neutrophils at the traumatized site, and the involved bone 
may be necrotic if enough time has passed to permit breakdown of osteoblast and osteocyte nuclei. This combination of features can resemble osteomyelitis. Uh, very important. Uh, okay, auto-inflammatory conditions of bone, especially the chronic recurrent multifocal osteomyelitis. Um, this is kind of getting to the weeds a little bit, but so he gives some diagnostic criteria here. Multiple bone lesions, years, so clinical course spanning years with remissions and exacerbations, no response to antibiotics, and manifesting on x-ray as foci of lysis surrounded by sclerosis. Chronic recurrent multifocal osteomyelitis usually presents in children who complain of pain and tenderness. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I hope I don't see that. A pediatric pathology scares me. Um, so moving on, hematopoietic malignancies. These contain large numbers of mature-appearing inflammatory cells that can cause confusion with, with osteomyelitis. Uh, so hopefully you are practicing somewhere where you have a uh, hemopath-trained uh, individual who uh, you can consult, or or if you're just a machine, yeah, you can just diagnose it yourself. But uh, but also be aware of some forms of Hodgkin's disease uh, can present with uh, populations of inflammatory cells, lymphocytes, plasma cells, mixed inflammatory infiltrate. So uh, the monomorphous nature of the cells in the setting of lymphoma or plasma cell malignancies is a key finding which helps separate them from infection. Regarding Hodgkin's disease, the identification of Reed-Sternberg cells and their variants is crucial for accurate diagnosis. Occasionally, some cases of Hodgkin's disease contain, contain many neutrophils and eosinophils. Uh, so I've definitely seen that in the mediastinum uh, with lots of eosinophils. Sarcoidosis, a granulomatous systemic disease of uncertain etiology. Um, skeletal disease happens in 1 to 13% of cases. Bone involvement is often bilateral, and bones commonly affected include the middle and distal phalanges, producing sausage finger, wrist, skull, vertebral column, and long bones. Radiographically, the lesions are lytic or lace-like, frequently involve the cortex, and may have a have moth-eaten margins. Uh, so, yeah. Histologically, sarcoidosis is by, characterized by, okay, so you're, you, we, we all have heard of this, the, the non-necrotizing granulomas, kidney bean-shaped uh, pale nuclei of these epithelioid histiocytes. Um, you can also have some giant cells in there, too, um, Differential diagnosis, of course, being granulomatous osteomyelitis uh, uh, caused by uh, mycobacteria, fungi, and bacteria. Okay, moving on to Langerhans cell histiocytosis, or histiocytosis X. That's Elon Musk's histiocytosis. Uh, okay, so the other name for this is eosinophilic granuloma, and... These lesions are well-defined and lytic on radiograph. They have uh, permeative margins in a minority of cases. And then histologically, you see proliferating Langerhans cells or ovoid round. And uh, they're in aggregates or sheets. Uh, but critically, they are very eosinophilic. And they have that classic coffee bean-shaped nucleus. Um, 
uh, with grooves. And the beware that the infiltrate of eosinophils can be so dense that the underlying Langerhans cells uh, are obscured. So you might not be able to see them. This is, I mean, is essentially an H&E, ah, I guess it's not, you need stains. Um, Langerhans cells strongly express S100, CD1A, and Langer, and Langerin. Uh, and then, uh, oh, so this is interesting. Langerhans cell histiocytosis can be distinguished from osteomyelitis by virtue, virtue of the fact that the Langerhans cells grow in clusters and are not randomly distributed as single cells in the setting of infection. Other helpful features are predominance of neutrophils in acute osteomyelitis and relative paucity of eosinophils in most types of bacterial infection. So uh, yeah, that's important. Uh, moving on to Rosai Dorfman. Uh, let's see, what are the key takeaways here? So fibrotic stroma, these histiocytes are also S100 positive. Mixed inflammatory cell inf infiltrate and... Uh, The inflammatory infiltrate can be interpreted. Yeah, it's just another thing to be aware of uh, in the differential diagnosis. Uh, interestingly, I saw this picture of, so the next entity he talks about is Erdheim-Chester disease, which is a BRAF V600E uh, mutated disease, and this can be detected on blood sample, actually. And histologically, you see foamy macrophages associated with mature uh, with a mature lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate and fibrosis, uh, bone is sclerotic with new deposition of woven bone. And this picture reminds me of really the only major paper that I wrote in a surgical pathology journal, which was histopathology. Um, so these foamy macrophages can mimic other lesions, including intraosseous hibernoma, uh, and actually, and metastatic prostate cancer to bone can look like that too, uh, but uh, but this but we're not talking about prostate cancer, are we? We're talking about osteomyelitis. Okay, we're wrapping up here. Osteonecrosis. He talks about uh, so bone does not undergo liquefactive necrosis and is instead characterized by dead cortical or trabecular bone with empty lacunar spaces that were once occupied by osteocytes. So the pathogenesis is still not understood in many cases, but likely results from the obstruction to vascular flow, possibly secondary to high intraosseous pressure. Back to our cartoon, the process may be purely medullary or in some cases involve the cortex as well as the cortico med Okay, so um, biologically, the, attempt, the natural history of osteonecrosis is characterized by the attempt to heal. So you get... New bone laid on top of the necrotic bone, uh, and then the necrotic bone removed by osteoclasts, a process known as creeping substitution. And then ne necrotic bone does not undergo the usual bone remodeling cycle in which there is constant turnover and replacement of the um, new bone. But importantly, from a clinical standpoint, is that dead bone is obviously weaker than viable bone and is prone to fracture and... Um, so yeah, that's a clinical pitfall. Okay, and now he's talking a little bit more about epidemiology of osteonecrosis, uh, getting into 
avascular necrosis of the femoral head, epidemiology. There's very um, literal little literature on the overall incidence. Um, pathology is confirmed by biopsy. So anucleate, bony trabeculae. Um, okay, let's just skip to the caveats. A few caveats are important in severe osteoarthritis. The surface osteocytes along the ebernated surface are usually dead, and in the cases where large subchondral cysts extend deep into the subchondral region, the entrapped trabecular bone may be necrotic, and this should not be interpreted as primary osteonecrosis. Another thing to remember is that over-decalcification can make bone appear anucleate. However, the cells of the soft tissue also appear pale. Uh, I know this has happened to me, and I'm actually worried that I might have like overcalled uh, osteonecrosis uh, in a couple of situations. Because if you that decal, man, uh, if you leave it in there long enough, it'll just destroy everything and makes everything look dead. So, okay, so today we just talked about osteomyelitis and osteonecrosis. Again, reference to the authors, Dr. Andrew Rosenberg and Jasveer S. Karana. Out of Diagnostic Histopathology, uh, published in 2016, excellent paper, a mini symposium, uh, pathology of non-neoplastic bone tumors. So I guess there was other articles on this, on related topics in that, in that issue. So I encourage you to go check it out. And uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Deeper Cuts podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist deep in the trenches of community practice. So every week we bring you something to think about, something to read, or something to listen to. 3D Percuts is brought to you by Formalin Fixed Paraffin Embedded Tissue. Emphasis on the Formalin. All right. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned next week, and I hope to see you back. Uh, until then, be well, stay curious, and most importantly, have fun. Good day.